All right. Three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. Somebody reached out to me after I did last week's show about John D. His name is Robert Frederick, and he has done a kind of uh, his own kind of podcast on the subject of a very important person in Western thinking and, and history, uh, Francis Bacon. And the title of our talk tonight will be uh, Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English Empire. So, um, so Robert Frederick, are you there? I am here. Thank awesome. you, William. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview, and thanks for reaching out. You know, it's a lot of saves me a lot of time when people have great ideas like yours and have done the research. So, for people who may not have heard your name, can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you came upon the subject of Francis Bacon? I'm a longtime researcher into various things. I have a wide range of interests. Um, in terms of geopolitics, I've kind of narrowed into the British Empire as the source of most of the problems in the world. Uh, various thinkers have led me there. One is uh, Guido Preparata and Conjuring Hitler. And just they're, they're everywhere. The British Empire is everywhere and there always seems to be problems with it. But they don't seem to get blamed for anything. They're, they're masters of uh, staying behind the scenes, even though they're obviously very present. Right. And I discovered, uh, I heard a podcast, actually, where a guy was talking about how Shakespeare could not have written Shakespeare. And I was fascinated by that, and I started looking into it, and the name of Francis Bacon was coming up. And I jumped into Francis Bacon, had, having already really dug into John Dee in a pretty big way and realizing that John Dee is hugely influential. But the fact of the matter is that Francis Bacon is 10 times as influential on our present world as John Dee. And I would even go so far as to say that Francis Bacon is the most influential person that ever lived. Yeah, it's a bold statement. Yeah. And I would say that only because you would probably want to say Jesus or Moses or Muhammad or Buddha. But now that science is a new religion and Francis Bacon is the father of modern science, I would call him a religious leader so that I feel like I can, I can go there with that statement. Yeah. So you can trace him, trace science back to him, his methodology, empiricism, and this kind of new religion of science. I would agree with that. So who was, for people who may not have known Francis Bacon, who was Francis Bacon and what, at what time did he live and around what, you know, he was in London, but what, uh, what was he the was situation? I've, I've discovered that Francis Bacon straddles three historical eras. He was born in 1561 in London during um, what you would still call the vestiges of the medieval era. The Renaissance was in full swing, obviously mostly in Italy, but it was spreading and it spread to France. It was getting to England. So it's the, uh, the medieval ages, the Renaissance, and Francis Bacon's thinking begins the Enlightenment, according to most historians. And on the throne at the time was Queen Elizabeth. So he, and the Reformation was raging. Uh, people were being burned at the stake for being in the wrong religion, Protestant or Catholic, in England. So it was a time of great turmoil, great secrecy was needed. You didn't know who to trust. And Francis Bacon was born 
right next door to Whitehall Palace, the palace of Queen Elizabeth. According to his first biographer, he might have been born in the palace. And his father was hugely powerful and influential, influential Nicholas Bacon. And his childhood upbringing was the perfect place to foster his genius, which is in many ways incomparable. And his, his, his ensuing influence on England and our present day is, is really hard to measure. And it's such a big story that it's hard to know where to begin. On the, the first podcast, I give a biography of him. Where, name your podcast, please. The name of the podcast is Frank, Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English Empire, but it's available at The Hidden Life is Best. And one of Bacon's mottos was, the hidden life is best. And he has managed to stay hidden most of these 400 years. And I, I, why don't I do what I did in the podcast? I kind of laid out the areas of influence. Great. Please do. And uh, hopefully it will be intriguing. But he's known as the father of modern science. So he's a philosopher. He's known primarily as a philosopher. And he has written some of the most enduring works of philosophy ever. So he's one of the greatest philosophers of all time, if you had to pick 100 or 200 over the last 3,000 years. Gotcha. He also was a lawyer, and he eventually became Attorney General of England at the very beginning of the British Empire. So he was there for a lot of very important things, one of which was the founding of Jamestown. He was Attorney General at that time. And his thinking was... Uh, quite strong, quite, quite profound, and he is thought to be a major influence on the field of jurisprudence. And English law has been very influential uh, in the course of history. So these two major accomplishments, major philosopher, major lawyer, uh, kind of just get started with his story because... He is believed by many to be Shakespeare. Yes. And that happened pretty much right away at the very beginning. Shakespeare, a poem was published under Shakespeare's name called Venus and Adonis. And immediately two poets published poems, like criticizing the poem and saying, this sounds like Christopher Marlowe. And there seems to be some bacon involved here. And, it, and the debate got shut off. And it, it did creep up a little bit during his lifetime. But starting in 1850, an American woman named Delia Bacon, no relation, uh, became the first person to really start pushing this idea that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare in a big way. She wrote a book about it. She was friends with Nathaniel Hawthorne. She was friends with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Walt Whitman held her in great esteem. And this story kind of got going, and the facts are that there's no way William Shakespeare wrote William Shakespeare. In fact, now it's beyond dispute. There's even a course at the University of London that you can take online. I took it that discusses the Shakespeare authorship question in detail. Hmm. Whereas just 30 years ago, if you said that as an academic, you would be fired. Well, it would be like constantly harping on the JFK assassination from a position of influence. You just you couldn't do it. 
but his Shakespeare is just so vast. His influence, he's probably the, or whoever this person was, the most influential dramatist in history, really. Exactly. Right? I mean, not, non, and because he's, he's been dispersed all throughout the world, J- Japan, France, people are, are, are familiar with Hamlet, so many important works. So bingo, bingo. Yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. Sorry. Please continue. So he, he has this reputation and a mystique that has really added to the luster of England and almost taken away from the fact that they are the most warlike nation ever. They even outdid the Romans, who were a big influence on them. And that's part of my theory, is that Shakespeare was a project of espionage. He was a project of social engineering at the very highest levels of Tudor London, of, of the Tudor government, which would be Queen Elizabeth, Walsingham, Cecil, Raleigh. I mean, uh, to just just to play off that, they, Shakespeare enriched the language. You have to remember that in that 16th century, the, the English were, you know, I mean, you could call them Bulgarians or just coarse or people coming out of the Renaissance. The Renaissance hadn't hit them yet. So, and and where was the play played in London at the Globe? All right. So, I mean, they had it down. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. That's a great they, you know point. that the original Shakespeare plays like. It was common for the commoners to come in and throw vegetables at the at the uh, the actors and stuff. I mean, just crazy stuff. But yeah, anyway, really crazy stuff. And there really was no theater until around this time. And Francis Walsingham, the greatest spy master of all time, he kind of invented the modern intelligence agency from which MI5 and MI6 are descendants and, and our CIA was keenly interested in the theater and helped get it established in London. And traveling actors make great spies, and plays are great propaganda. Today, films are great propaganda. And and right at that time, the English became the greatest actors and the greatest spies, or shortly thereafter. And one of the things I say in the podcast is, it's just a truism that the greatest spy is also the greatest actor, because you're on stage 24-7, and your well, life... So- depends on your giving of a perfect performance and they do have a great reputation for for being great actors and if anybody knows anything about the world of espionage knows that you know the brits are king so francis bacon had a lot to do with that and now he didn't do that alone but your point about the english language is true francis bacon completely rejuvenated, revitalized the English language. It was kind of a backwards language because the aristocracy had been speaking primarily French and Latin. And the commoners were almost wholly illiterate. And there was, it's considered like maybe one or two important books had been written in English up to that point. And suddenly, all these translations start appearing in the 1580s. Bacon was 18 or 19. Latin uh, Latin translations, Greek translations, uh, particularly, and a lot of times by anonymous people or one-offs, people that never wrote another book. And it's thought that Bacon was responsible for a lot of those early translations. He was an extreme prodigy, He knew Latin, Greek, French, Italian, English, obviously, Spanish, 
and Hebrew by the time he was 12. That's just incredible. Incredible. He, he, he was known to have an incredible memory. He was known as the Prince of Memory. He uh, went to college at age 12. He pretty much read all the Greek and Latin classics by 15. Trinity College, University of Cambridge, right? Yeah. Henry VIII started. And he dropped out. The smartest man that ever lived was a college dropout. And he announced that he was bored. And at the age of 15, he was already challenging Aristotle, who he believed, though great, his philosophy was not useful. So at the age of 15, it's hard to believe as I say this, but he was already laying the groundwork for a new kind of thinking. So he's given credit for introducing inductive reasoning. There's two kinds of reasoning, deductive and inductive. Francis Bacon is given credit for inductive reasoning and kind of giving us a new way of thinking. And he was already on that path at 15, which is very hard to believe. But everything I'm saying is straight history. It's not really in dispute. People quibble about it and, you know, what it means. And But this, this is all, like, official history. Right. And he went off to France. His first uh, mission as a spy was going to France for Walsingham. And he became part of the French court. And the French and English are actually quite close. It's kind of thought that they're enemies, and of course they are, and sometimes, and over here they fought. But they're very close. The Tudor line originated in France. And like I said, the, uh, the aristocracy spoke, Fran- spoke French. And there was a lot of give and, give and take from the two countries. And Bacon became involved with a group of young scholars called the Pleiades Group. And this is also uh, above board. This is also well known. And the Pleiades group were consciously trying to invigorate the French language at that time by intensive study of Latin and Greek. And Bacon fell in with them. It might have been on purpose that he went there. And this Pleiades group was sponsored by uh, Louis. The king. Yeah, the king. King Henry. Henry III. Okay. And... um, He was completely enamored of that idea, and that is believed to have changed his life. And what's different from there on in is that he he did it in a hidden way. He didn't want a lot of uh, attention for it. He didn't want a lot of acknowledgement for it. And the idea that I'm bringing forth is that he had an extreme patriotism, an extreme nationalism as the secret son that he saw that English needed to be developed. And he is credited. Another above-board thing that's, that's not hidden is that Bacon is given credit for redeveloping the English language just from his first book, which was called Essays. But the weird thing is that Bacon published almost nothing for 25 years besides the slim volume called Essays, which isn't much, and a few other things. He didn't have an official position in government. He was known as learned counsel to the queen, but it wasn't official. But she would consult with him. He was a lawyer, but he didn't practice. They have meticulous records that still exist. Francis Bacon was not practicing law. He sat in the House of Commons, but back in those days, they met a few weeks of the year. 
So a man named William Smedley was the first person to point this out in 1912. He wrote a book called The Mysterious Francis Bacon. And he pointed out that this man who was considered a great genius didn't do anything until his 40s. What's up with that? And that's where the story doesn't add up for Francis Bacon. And that's where people start digging. And that's where there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that he was writing a lot of books. And shortly thereafter, Delia Bacon, a woman named Constance Pott, started the Francis Bacon Society in England in 1880. It's still functioning society. They put out a journal every year. Very intelligent, not flaky stuff, very learned stuff all to the proposition that Francis Bacon was Shakespeare. And so there's just a century and a half of information about Bacon and Shakespeare. One of the great books I have is Who Wrote Shakespeare? And he researched the Shakespeare authorship question. He said there were thousands of books, you know, at Smedley's time, at the turn of the last century, about the Shakespeare authorship question. And a lot of them pointing to Bacon. Bacon has always been the primary uh, suspect. And why, why is Bacon the primary suspect? Because of his tremendous learning, because of his association with people like Ben Johnson, because a lot of people get into this thing called ciphers. So another thing that Bacon did was create ciphers, secret codes, so you could send messages hidden in ordinary looking letters or just secret codes that you would have to decipher. But Bacon invented some ciphers and it was believed that he put these secret messages in Shakespeare and in his writing. And a lot of it has to do with numerology and gematria, which is comes out of the Hebrew and the Kabbalah and that people found all these clues in Shakespeare and in his associations. And there's a couple other things, some, some very significant documents were found. You could almost call them smoking guns, where since there's absolutely no record of Shakespeare's handwriting, there's six signatures of William Shakespeare. Three of them are unintelligible. Three of them are on his will. There's not one single letter from the greatest playwright of all time. Yeah, no, it's a remarkable, like this greatest playwright of all time. There's very little evidence and very little publicity about him. Like typically today, when everybody writes a film or something, they're publicizing it and letting everybody know. Yeah. There's a little bit. And then there's overlays the Shakespeare uh, translates or references the shaking of this wisdom spear of Good. Yeah. Athena. There's all kinds of little hints and tells. His, his brother was also a spy, Francis Bacon. Correct. And his brother's friend was the basis of a character. So it ties. Yeah. If you remember that story, I forgot. What yeah. It was. Yeah. Those are the names. So Love's Labor's Lost is one of the very earliest Shakespeare plays. And it takes place in France. And it takes place as part of an academy of young scholars that have devoted their life to study. And they're going to swear off women. And the clues in there for it being Bacon are numerous, and it was first, well, most of these plays were first performed for the Queen in, in Whitehall, later in Blackfriars Theatre, 
A lot of these plays were meant for the aristocracy. And the associations with Bacon are so numerous. It's a funny play. It's not, it's not a very good play. Uh, it's not considered one of the heavyweights. But it was first supposed to be performed publicly at the law school where Bacon studied law and still kept residences. And he was the head of the revels that year. He was master of the revels for the the twelve-night Christmas season. And two Shakespeare plays were performed that year. One was performed. Love's Labor's Lost was supposed to be performed, but for some reason it wasn't. But Comedy of Errors was performed that year, 1594. And as far as I know, it's the first recorded instance of a Shakespeare play being recorded. And Francis Bacon was master of revels that year. Right. I mean, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. And like you said, there's when you when you walk into this area of research with fresh eyes, the clues are just everywhere. And there's a number number of books written about this. I could I could read a couple right here for people that are interested. One of the best is Mark Twain. Mark Twain's last book was called Is Shakespeare Dead? And it's very funny, as you can imagine, and it's been turned into a one-man play, and it's on YouTube. If you just look for "Is Shakespeare Dead," and it's very, very funny. So, so Twain was onto this, and independent artists and scholars could talk about this. As I said, you couldn't talk about it in the academy, and none of these books were were publicized or given a lot of credence. The major newspapers wouldn't talk about them the major academies wouldn't talk about them but that's a great place to start is with mark twain and um have you ever seen the reference to bacon being shakespeare and manly peace hall secret secret teachings of all ages i've heard about that i mean yeah no but it's fascinating because not only does he make that statement he has a lithograph of a picture of bacon and a picture of who supposedly was William Shakespeare, and he puts <laughs> them on top of each other, and it's the same person. Oh, interesting! I never yeah. saw that. I heard yeah, you no. If you it. can, if you can get the original copy of the, it's a big book, the original Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall. It's fascinating because you, it's it's a carbon copy, literally a carbon copy of the same person, and and Hall lays it out very clearly that I, something else, something strange is going on. I think it was an open secret at the time that there's no way this could have been pulled off for Shakespeare to remain hidden unless it was known about at the highest levels of state. Right. And the other thing is like this supposed guy from Stratford-on-Avon. I mean, it's just an incredible myth because people are going to Stratford-on-Avon to see this person. But how did he have access to that much knowledge on history? I mean, very detailed knowledge of classics, Julius Sate, Shakespeare, all of these things and all of these words where is he getting this? Is he getting it in some kind of outside of London in some weird places? Very mysterious how this person gleaned that knowledge or supposedly, or I guess he did it in London. Yeah. Well, people that believe the, the uh, story of the man from Stratford are called Stratfordians. And Stratfordians tie themselves into knots to explain that very thing. There's the Shakespeare missing years between when he left Stratford and when he first published a poem. It's about 10 years. It's from 1584 to 1594, roughly. And they think he somehow acquired all that knowledge in those 10 years, so he would need to learn five languages, uh, have read lots of ancient Greek and, and Latin that hadn't been published in English yet, 
He would have had to travel in Italy and France. Uh, you know, just all this just as well as become a brilliant playwright. And right. Funny, you know, really funny. Witty. Characters, witty and profound. Yeah. And There's tons of Italian connections to tons Shakespeare. Of yeah. Bacon went to Italy during that sojourn to Europe. Okay. Merchant of Venice, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, really deep stuff. Just enormous amounts of knowledge. Uh, and so they tie themselves in knots. And it's very hard. I even have a, a good friend who's an actor who's very open-minded. But he's, for 40 years, been believing that Shakespeare was from Stratford, and he, he clings to it. And one of their arguments is that, well, you don't think a common person could be a genius. But that's not true at all. A commoner can be a genius, but their genius will be about their life, what their life was like growing up and who they were growing up. There's not a single mention of Stratford in all of Shakespeare. Right. That's the other thing is, where's the biography? Like, you're making the greatest <laughs> works of, of, of art, you know, of, of playwright in history. Where's just a simple bio? This is what happened. This is my mom. This is my brothers. These are what I did. Exactly. This is how I found this. And that's what Twain points out. Twain, as a writer, points that out over and over again. Twain, as the commoner, who was a genius, self-taught genius, Mark Twain, points that out over and over in his very funny is Shakespeare dead? That that could con- convince you alone. Just just listening to that, but uh, the evidence is overwhelming. He, he apparently Shakespeare couldn't even read or write. He was just a, a hanger on the theater scene. He had part ownership of possibly the Globe. I forget. He was a minor actor. He would and there's there's no evidence for him writing plays, but there's all kinds of evidence for him doing business deals and trading in grain and loaning people money and suing people. There, there is a paper trail, but none of it has to do with writing. There's also Diana Price, um, the Shakespeare authorship question, New Doubts, and she's very scientific about it. She made a list of questions of what would prove that William Shakespeare is actually his real name. They right. changed it to Shakespeare because it fits so perfectly with Athena, as right. Bacon's muse, but his name was Shakespeare. And very, she, you know, spreadsheeted it and excelled it, and she wrote a very scholarly book. And it has a great presentation on YouTube, Diana Price, Shakespeare Authorship Question, where she just destroys any idea that William Shakespeare could have been Shakespeare. And that opens up a huge question, because it's not just, oh, uh, aristocrats did it because they couldn't put their name on the plays. It's much, much more than that. And you you intuited it right away. It's that this was something much more than just writing plays. This was some integral part of the nascent British Empire of building up an image of propaganda. And many of the plays are known to be propaganda. They're propaganda for the Tudors. Henry V, right. All these these king ones, the French are bad, we're heroes. Exactly. And the brothers still, still today, very exactly. England-centric. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it fits right in with Bacon's outlook. If he's a patriot, he's there with the queen. He's just a super genius. This is what these kind of things are right. I mean, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so what about the other plays? And that's part of my task is to understand them as propaganda 
They're littered with Gnostic symbolism. They're littered with Freemasonic symbolism. So at the, the unconscious tempest, level, yeah. yeah, at the unconscious level, they're propaganda. They're they're putting symbols in your mind it's right off the bat with love labors, love's labors lost. Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay, yeah, they're really yeah. Midsummer Night's Dream is straight up, uh, you know, mysticism and occultism. Yeah, but it's littered throughout the plays, and when you go in, and Freemasons have started to do this, and it just pops out to them the Freemasonic imagery, and they write about it because they want to claim Bacon as their own. And many of them do. It's, it's suspected that Bacon started Freemasonry. It's I'm not out on a limb with that. It's harder to prove than the Shakespeare, but it's it's there. You just have the to occult, know. The occultism of Masonry and that thing is very tied in an integral part of the... Uh, queen and king's power in England. It's always been. I think one of the families is typically the head of Freemasonry in all of England. I forgot his name, but the current one. But there's all kinds of secret orders and things like that. Yeah, that, that just shows you like the vastness of this project I've taken on is that the subject of Freemasonry is vast. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of books and all this mystery. But they want it to be mysterious. It's not so mysterious. They came out of the Templars. That's been proven. There's Templar degrees in Freemasonry. And what else happened with Freemasonry? It spread around the globe. Scottish Rite. There's lodges in almost every country, at least 100 countries. Africa, Asia. And they're uh, guiding, one of the guiding principles is secrecy. So the hidden life is best. And develop this technique of secrecy. It's very profound. And ultimately that's deception. And I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by this concept of deception. Right. Every prime minister in England going back 400 years has been amazing. Incredible. 15 American presidents. Right. At least known that we know. Right? And uh, dozens of entertainers, right? Entertainment, oh, stage, these, yeah. uh, propaganda, and the secret um, patriotism. To, the, to, the, to, to England. And that is part of why the English Empire is the most successful and largest empire of all time. And what I say in the podcast is it's still the most successful empire. The sun has still not set on the English Empire. English banking, English yeah. music, English sports, English science, English... Did I say music already? The Queen uh, still owns tons of territory land. She owns all the land in England, Canada... And why do we constantly have the royal family shoved down our throats? Why is that important? And to update the whole thing, this whole Meghan and Harry thing, I'm convinced. And I'm working on it, but it's another ruse. It's another propaganda uh, espionage tactic. Hmm. It's an operation. And because it's, he's not really revealing anything, right? He hasn't told us anything about Charles and and, uh, Saville. He hasn't said anything about Andrew and Epstein. Right. It's all, oh, they're, they're racist. They're racist. Wow. Who knew? Yeah, really. What a shock. What a shock. The royal family of England are racist. That's just fascinating. Thank you, Harry and Meghan. You're so brave. You know, it's ridiculous. This is what their master is deflection, it's distraction. They're masters Secret, of it. secrecy, though. Secrecy. Yeah. They're masters of secrecy. They hide in plain sight. They use the techniques of magic. And a stage magician, 
they're incredible. They do things right in front of your face, hiding, hide it in plain sight. Right. And there's techniques that they've taken to do that on a geopolitical level. I mean, slavery is a good example. Francis Bacon was there at the very beginning of slavery. Nobody ever says that. Freemasons were extremely important in the slave trade. Nobody ever says that. Why is there not a book titled Freemasonry and the Slave Trade? I have dug up some books, and I'm in the process of going through them. There's just so much information here. Part of my podcast is hopefully I'll attract scholars and interested researchers to join me and discuss this stuff. But England doesn't really get blamed much for slavery because they banished it before the United States, right? They're sort of seen as, oh, the heroes. And, yeah, they, they brag st- about it. Right? Yeah, 19th century, yeah. They stopped slavery. No, they started it. They made tons of money. The English Empire is rich because of slavery. Because they, all that iron they made in their factories, they were the Industrial Revolution, right? The Industrial Revolution started there. Capitalism started there. Communism started there. Fascism started there. They got rich because they sold their iron implements to the slave owners here who needed them to start their plantations. They got insanely rich off slavery. Nobody talks about it. They even sort of look like the good guys. They wrote, uh, you know, they stopped it. They, and they did. Don't get, me, don't get started with the drug trade either, too. Oh, don't my God. That's a whole other thing. Me. That was the other direction. Yeah, the, the earliest <laughs> trading and drug. It's, it all, all conspiracy roads lead to London. You could go over them and over them and over them. World War One, World War Two. It just goes on and on and on. And so I'm just fascinated by this idea. And it all came out of, out of Tudor London, which is, is a fascinating time. I really believe that, that Tudor London is the equal of, uh, you know, the Athens of Plato. Or Athens the, or Renaissance. Florence. Florence yeah, yeah. Like and writing was to... London, Tudor London, as painting and sculpture were to Florence. Right. Well, because the weather's terrible, right? So there's no (laughs) time to be outside. There was nothing else to do. Yeah, Yeah. they're not great sculptors. They're they're some great painters. They wrote and and wrote and wrote and kind of competed with each other. It was like the New York jazz scene, you know, in the 30s and 40s, where guys are like competing with each other and coming up with, you know, great works of genius. Theirs was writing. And writing is the most powerful tool you know the, the pen is mightier than the sword right. and and that is where the real magic comes in is, is words right and one of the other one of the other um here, okay this that's in this jack you just said that i was just going to ask this about bacon's connection to king james and the bible do you know anything about that yes i do so elizabeth died about at age of 70 in 1603 and i'm pretty sure her last words were let it be james James VI of Scotland became James I of England, and that was kind of the beginning of Great Britain, where they they merged with Scotland. But really, it's all London. James was probably a Freemason. I I think definitely. Freemasons say he was a Freemason. And and, and there the, the, the whole tone changed because astrology, alchemy were really big with Elizabeth. All kinds of magic. John Dee was very important. And that changed with James. He wrote a book called Demonology, right. which condemned 
you know, this kind of, a lot of this kind of stuff. He had supposedly had conflicts with witches, like personal conflicts. So for him, it was, it was palpable. It wasn't some uh, other thing. I think there was some story about a boat and witches tried to curse him supposedly. Interesting. That I don't know about. And that's what inspired him to write demonology. Yeah, but it's still available. It looks like Francis Bacon might have written demonology by these Bacon, these really deep Bacon researchers ascribe a lot of books to him. Because James was not very smart, and he, it was decided that they needed a new a new translation of the Bible, because there was no definitive translation to turn to. Supposedly, there was an English translation of the Bible. That man was burned or, or hung. Right, I forgot what was his name. Uh, I can't remember. Not, not Tyndall, right? I, I forget. And the new translation is ninety percent his. But you, there's a whole another area I haven't right. had time to really check out. But yes, they translated the Bible. There were nine teams of six. Wycliffe, I think was his name. Was it Wycliffe? Was it Wycliffe? That's a fascinating story. Bart Ehrman has a good speech about that on, uh, on YouTube. He's a great Christian scholar, scholar of Christianity. So they decided to translate the Bible, and they, they, they broke it up into teams of like nine teams of five scholars each, something like that. They did the work in a few years, and then they handed the translation to James, who sat on it for a year and then gave it back to them. Strongly believe that Bacon took that Bible for a year and put finishing touches on it. And just like Shakespeare, there's absolutely no record of any manuscripts, any previous writing, any rough drafts, Nothing, not one shred pertaining to the King James Bible. It just suddenly appeared finished. Yeah, so that's very weird. And there's clues. There's there's Rosicrucian uh, graphics. We yes, graphics. I've heard that. Yeah, that's that's right there. That's but, agreed on. But you can almost extrapolate the creation of the King James Bible to back to Shakespeare. And that same process yeah. of creating the Bible may have been created in Shakespeare through an invisible college. So maybe the bacon yeah. was the head, yeah. but there might have been other teams work. I think so. I think it's known that bacon had what he called my good pens in the helmet society, my scriveners. And I think he was doling out work. I think Shakespeare was a project. I think it's agreed upon now by, by mainstream Shakespeare scholarship that, Marlowe was involved in some Shakespeare plays. Wow, fascinating. And, yeah, that's mainstream thinking now. Wow. Shakespeare had collaborators, and he probably had a few. His genius was so profound that he could make it all seem like one writer. But if you get into the plays, you can tell that some of them are not really. Right. The They're so brilliant that different minds, just smart people. But yeah. also, these that's what happens with modern films. Those are exactly. One guy may have a name, but he's might be working with other people. And some of these studios, they just hire ten dudes and hammer it out. And if you look at even the shows today, yeah. they're the product of groups. Exactly. And the and a play is different than a novel. It'd be hard to write a group novel, but a play is kind of a live thing that that changes and shifts, and things get added, things get subtracted. So yeah, I right. easily but it also find explains it. the tremendous output in a short period of time. Not exactly. just one person, but multiple people. Exactly. It's like a theme, anyone. Yeah. But Bacon was such a profound genius that he could do many things at once. I mean, his works of philosophy didn't really start getting written until under James, 
he was knighted. He was given positions of power. He became a practicing lawyer, worked his way up to attorney general. It was a time of great strife. There were lots of legal issues. There were revolts. Star Chamber. Star Chamber. And he was, he was putting out some enduring works of philosophy at the same time. He was also like a designer. He, there was a very important uh, wedding of, of James, James I's daughter, Elizabeth, to the uh, Palatine Prince Frederick. It was a big Rosicrucian ceremony. It was meant to be a big deal, this union of these two dynasties. Germany was, parts of Germany, it wasn't Germany yet, were very close to London. And Rosicrucianism seems to have come out of Germany, but it was this huge wedding. And Bacon did all the ceremonies, did, designed the whole thing. Like, what's, what's this uh, lawyer, philosopher doing designing a wedding? But he could do all that at once. Lots of lots of crazy stuff like that in the story, which is one reason I'm so fascinated by it. Oh, it's just an incredible output at that time, though. It's just off the and, charts. And, and then imagine that he's he's reconstructing Freemasonry from the Knights Templar, and the transition of the Templars into Freemasonry, I think, is the biggest story of the whole last millennium. The Templar were such a powerful group that that had to go underground, and that's really not an issue anymore. It's now definite knowledge that the Templars morphed into the Freemasons. Just like it's no doubt. Not. They're still yeah. there. They're, you can get into the Jacques de Molay. I have a friend of mine who was in the Jacques de Molay Society yeah. when he was uh, Yeah, right. Kid. Yeah, it's, it's all still alive. Like, it's not past. It's present. Yeah. So that he was doing and Rosicrucianism and developing his whole theory of science, uh, attorney general, big time lawyer, Connected too, right? Connected to the king, maybe an offspring of Elizabeth. Uh, last offspring of Elizabeth, very close to James, probably finished up the translation of the Bible. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah, it's just, spy, it's, Walsingham D, all these people. He was a spy. He's making ciphers. No, it's, it's just incredible. And, and that all expands into this you know, huge, huge project that some people, like I said, the Francis Bacon Society, in terms of Shakespeare, they've been working on. So I'm jumping in. And, and, yeah, but that's also the potency of the English empire wasn't just its military might. It was also it's the power of the language and its, yeah. it, its intellectual heritage as well. It's, and its propaganda. Yeah. And its ability to, to stay hidden. Like they're really not thought of as the bad guy in world history, but they absolutely are. Oh. The, the atrocities they committed in all, uh, so endless. many places are off the charts. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just endless. But you know, yeah, think India, of England, China, yeah. <laughs> China, the drug running, the slave trading, the gun running. But when you think of England, you know, you might think of the Premier League right. uh, schedules, people sipping tea with their pinky raised. Right. Uh, you know, all anything but war. But they've invaded 185 countries. Off the charts, yeah. It's crazy. But they somehow, well, because the Freemasons started the universities here, all the early colleges, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, yeah. they're all started by Freemasons. So they can kind of control what scholars study. And there's never been the book on Freemasonry and slavery. Or there Francis Bacon's, right. did he sign off on selling Africans? Did he? Because he was Attorney General of England at that time when the slave trade started, which had started before that, but they were selling human beings 
Where is that in, in English, you know, history of law? And they're beating up on the, not just beating up, but they were committing atrocities in Ireland for a couple centuries. Right, atrocities so in Ireland. It's not a race thing. It's just yeah, an Australia. elite thing. Australia, yeah. It's just an elite an elite thing they can and it's not discussed and that's kind of the deflection of shakespeare he doesn't talk about any of this stuff there'll be a bad guy you know there'll be a richard ii or a, a iago right but never england he never discusses slavery hardly and if he does he gets close to it with the uh, caliban and the tempest and yeah, that's a, that's a full-on kind of racist play and a elitist play it's like what you said I think it was you, but it's it's not about race. It's just about elitism. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Merchant of Venice, too, could be seen as, like, you know, maligning Jews. Or, uh, little, and Shakespeare is like, oh, the great humanist, you know. Right. I want my pound of flesh. Right? Yeah. The, you know, the quality of mercy is not strained, but it was really a cover-up. And he's so associated with England. And it's, right. it's love and poetry, right? Great poetry right. And, and elevating the human spirit. But behind it, they're invading 185 countries and getting away with it. It's And then I seem to have shrunken now, right? They're this little island nation. Right. But the price of gold is still set in London. English finance taking right. over the world. LIBOR, LIBOR exchange is London. Yeah. London, so, London interbra- interbank offering rate. So Bacon was really the first globalist, along with John Dee. you got to put John Dee in there. And the, this project of taking over the planet is is in full force and seems to be nearing completion. And it seems to be fueled by a Gnosticism, that the religion is not Christian, it's Gnostic. And the Gnostics believe that this God, was, this, God this world, was made by a lesser God. And in some sense, an evil God. And, you know, very quick, long and short of it is that kind of gives you license to denigrate this planet and to take it over as an act of justice. Because the the God that made the world is evil. And that's kind of what's going on here, I think, and that the Freemasons are Gnostics. Rosicrucians are Gnostics. Bacon's a Gnostic. The Gnostic symbolism is shot through Shakespeare. And what does that mean? And here's a quote. I just want to read this. This is from a very famous book about Bacon and his science called uh, From Magic to Science by Paolo Rossi. And there's a quote from Bacon that he he kind of made see that he's Bacon had uh, general success and common good of all. But here's the quote. It says, Further, it will not be admiss to distinguish the three kinds and, as it were, three grades of ambition in mankind. The first is those who desire to extend their own power in their native country, which kind is vulgar and degenerate. The second is of those who labor to extend the power of their country and its dominion among men. This certainly has more dignity, though not less covetousness. But if a man endeavors to establish and extend the power and dominion of the human race itself over the universe, his ambition, if ambition it can be called, is without a doubt a both more wholesome thing and a more noble than the other two. So to take over the universe is a noble ambition. 
<laughs> it's crazy. It's right there. This this great book about him. It's all about science. He actually says that's a good thing. What what he's saying there. Well, we are at 50 minutes. Is there anything that you would like to add? Anything I missed? Or can you tell the audience about where they can listen to your podcast? I would say go to thehiddenlifeisbest.com and give a listen. Reach out. Uh, any researchers or anybody interested in this, let's, uh, let's add our efforts together. Like Bacon wanted all the scientists to work together let's let's work together and dig into this and try to expose the deception the hidden life is best.com and you can see your email there if you want to shoot robert frederick an email it's robert frederick f-r-e-d-e-r-i-c-k at the hidden life is best.com awesome but, that'd uh, be great yeah awesome awesome interview thanks so much for reaching out really fascinating and i really appreciate the work you're doing so i'm definitely going to be following you as well Oh, fantastic, William. I really appreciate you having me on. All right, take care. Have a great week. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.